It's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, a New York writer put in his last will and testament that he wanted his body to be donated to science, and he specified that he wanted his body to be given to Harvard University, and the specific reason he selected Harvard University was also placed in his will. He said that my parents wanted me to go to Harvard my whole life, and this is the only way I could get in. Now, if you want your estate or your wealth or your house or possessions or even your body uh, to go to specific people when you die, then you need to make a will and testament. The will and testament reveals who you want your uh, estate to be given to, how you want it to be divided up among your children or uh, among grandchildren or family or charities, whoever it may be. And when there's a wealthy person who has a, a large estate, a lot of things that they want to will to others, there are several important roles involved in making the, the will and testament of that deceased person able to be followed. First, there is the testator. The testator testator is the person who writes the will, uh, the person who specifies where all of their possessions and belongings are going to go. Second, there's the activator. Uh, the will and testament, it has to be activated before the beneficiaries of that will can receive it. And the thing that activates any will is the death of the person who wrote the will. Third, there is the arbitrator. Uh, the arbitrator is like a judge. You know, if there's a dispute in a will, especially if the will has been uh, rewritten, uh, especially close to the person's death, then oftentimes there is a, um, you know, just kind of some people who think they should get something. And so the arbitrator comes and he's the judge who determines who gets what, uh, and especially if that will has been ratified. And fourth, there is the executor. The executor is appointed typically by the person who writes the will. They say, hey, you know, if I die, I want you to be the executor of my will, and you're going to have the role of reading it out to all of my heirs, but also to manage all of the estates and to get the things to the right people. Now, the reason I bring this up and the, the details of a will and testament is because as we come now to Hebrews chapter 9, the, the latter part of this chapter, the author is going to use this picture of a will and testament of Jesus and the death of Jesus in order to make that will and testament possible and available to you and I. And something the author is going to reveal to us through this picture is that the role that Jesus plays within his own will and testament is quite a unique role. And the reason it's unique is because Jesus fulfills all the roles that I just 
mentioned. See, typically when you know you have someone who dies, they're only going to play one role. They're the testator. They wrote the will, and then their death activates the will, but now they're dead and gone. And so they can't be the executor. You know, they can't be uh, the arbitrator. Those are, are different people. The executor is someone that they appointed. The arbitrator is usually someone who the court appoints. But the reality is those are different people than themselves. And that's the big difference with Jesus. Not only is he the testator, the one who writes the will, and the activator, the one whose death makes the will available and possible, but he's also the arbitrator, the judge who gets to determine who gets what out of the will, and he's the executor, the one who's managing it to make sure those who are a part of the will, heirs of the will, get the blessings that they're supposed to get. Another thing that's completely unique to Jesus in this role that he has, is he's also going to return to the earth. You see, when your loved one dies and they leave you an inheritance, you're not anticipating them to come walking through the door and saying, hey, here I am alive. You know, they're dead, they're buried, you receive the inheritance. You know, you don't expect to see them again until you go to heaven. But Jesus, on the other hand, he's risen, he's alive, and he's coming back. So typically, there are only four important roles connected with a will and testament. But with Jesus, there are five, and he fulfills all of them himself. Now, in this picture of a will and testament and the five roles that go with it, the author is really emphasizing two main things. First, he's emphasizing the death of Jesus and how that death activates this new covenant testament and will of Jesus, because that's what his will and testament is, the new covenant. And it also, secondly, it's focusing on the resurrection of Jesus, which enables the uh, all these roles that he possesses and he does. And I think this is so fitting and such great timing that we are here in this portion of Scripture this morning, because this coming Friday, we celebrate Good Friday, the death of Jesus and all that that has done for us. And this coming Sunday, we celebrate Easter, the resurrection of Jesus and all that that has done for us. And so what we're going to look at this morning, I think is just going to be a great preparation for the celebration that we're going to have next Weekend. And the author starts painting this picture of a, a will and testament and the roles that go with it in Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 15 through 17. And it says this And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the internal inheritance. For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Now the author starts with this phrase, for this reason, Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. And when he speaks of for this reason, he's referring back to what he just shared in verses 13 and 14, which we looked at last week. But I'll just remind you of what that says. It says, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot towards God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? 
So the author just realized, hey, the blood and sacrifice of Jesus, it does so much more than the blood and sacrifices of animals under the old covenant. And so he starts off saying, for this reason, because Jesus' sacrifice and blood does so much more than animal sacrifices and blood, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death. Now, in these verses here, there are three really important words that I want us to define because they paint this picture of the will and testament and the roles that go with it. And the first word that I want us to define is this Greek word translated mediator. It means one who brings two groups together in order to restore peace. And that's kind of the typical way that we think of it. But it also is speaking of one who brings two groups together in order to ratify a covenant an arbitrator. Now, as I noted already, an arbitrator is that person that's brought in when the will is in change and there's this possible dispute and they're that judge who's going to determine who gets what and how this will is going to be shared and given out. The second word we need to define is covenant. Now, this Greek word um, means a valid arrangement between two parties that is legally binding. And the Greek word was used in two different ways. First, it was used to describe a, a arrangement between two parties where both are legally binding themselves to do something for the other party. I think today in our terminology, a contract would be more fitting because any contract you have, it's kind of like, hey, I will do this and you will do that. And therefore, we both agree that we're going to do this. And if you break your end, the contract's void. And if I break my end, then the contract is void. And I think a good example of this concept of a covenant uh, is in the old covenant where God establishes really kind of that contract with the nation of Israel. He says, hey, you know what? If you guys do your part and you obey me, then I'm going to do my part and I'm going to bless you. But if you don't do your part and you disobey me, well, then there's going to be no blessing in this covenant. There's actually going to be curses. And so both parties are agreeing and the nation of Israel say, yes, we agree to obey. And God says, fine, I agree to bless if you obey. So that's the first way this word was used is when both parties are agreeing to do something for the other party. But there's another way in which this word is used. It's where one party legally binds themselves to do something for another party, but that other party doesn't have to do anything in order to receive that. And one of the most common ways that this was done and this word was used is to speak of a will and testament that was given to someone else. Because when you write your will, you're making a legal binding document that declares, hey, I'm going to give certain aspects of my estate or my possessions or whatever it is to this person and to that person and to that person. And guess what? They don't have to do anything in order to receive it. The only thing that has to happen in order for them to receive it is I have to die. And once I die, this inheritance, what I'm giving, what I've written in my will, will automatically go to these people. And so it's kind of a, a one-sided, so to speak, this covenant, this, this thing, because it's all about the will and not about those receiving it. The one writing it is giving away things. The ones receiving it just get to be blessed by having those things when that person dies. Now, this is interesting that we have these two words because the Bible will translate it sometimes covenant 
and other times testament. And we actually clearly see this here in verses 15 through 17. We have the same Greek word four times in these verses, but it's translated different. Notice that in verse 15, we see the same Greek word translated covenant twice. And it's speaking of the new covenant and the old covenant. And then all of a sudden you come to verses 16 and 17 and you see the word testament twice. And you're probably thinking, oh, those are different words. No, that's the same Greek word. Uh, And it's just referring to making, because in verses 16 and 17, it's clearly referring to a will and testament. And so the uh, translators wanted to make sure that we didn't miss that reality. Now, the amazing thing the author is pointing out to us is that this wonderful will and testament of Jesus Christ is actually the new covenant which makes the new covenant once again so much greater than the old covenant contract. Because under the old covenant contract, as I just mentioned, both parties are responsible for doing something in order to receive the benefits and blessings of that covenant. But under the new covenant, it's very different. Jesus says, hey, I am willing all these things and all these blessings to you you are going to be the ones who inherit those things and you will receive it when I die. And there's nothing that you have to do for me in order to get it. You're just going to be my heirs and I'm going to give it to you freely. All you have to do is trust in me, believe in me, and it's yours. Very different than from the old covenant where it's like I have to do my works, I have to do my obedience, and then I will receive the benefits and the blessings where the new covenant is no. Just trust in Jesus and you'll be an heir in the inheritance will automatically be yours because of his death. The third word that we need to define here is eternal inheritance. You know, an inheritance is what you receive when someone dies. They leave it to you because you are their heir. And you know what? The only way that you can receive an eternal inheritance is if the person who is writing the will is eternal. You know, he's the only one who can give an eternal inheritance, and the only eternal one is God himself. And that's what makes this inheritance so unique and so wonderful that it's not a temporary inheritance. It's an eternal inheritance written by the eternal God. So now that we hopefully understand the meaning of those three different words, let's get into what the author is communicating here in verses 15 through 17. First, the author tells us that Jesus is the the mediator, as I said, arbitrator of the new covenant, and he specifies by means of death. Since God made a new covenant, a new will and testament, there needs to be an arbitrator who judges, well, who gets to be the beneficiaries of this new will and testament? And Jesus is the arbitrator. And the one of the reasons he has been able to receive that role is because of his death. And notice the author tells us that Jesus has the role of an arbitrator for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant or old covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. See, Jesus has the role of arbitrator for those who were under that first old covenant who sinned who broke the covenant. Now you would think that, hey, someone who's in that role of arbitrator or judge would determine, hey, none of you guys are worthy. None of you guys should receive any of the benefits of this new covenant or will and testament because you completely failed and broke and sinned when uh, you had that first covenant from God. 
But the author is telling us that because of Jesus' death on the cross for our sins, He's able to redeem everyone under the old covenant who has sinned. That those who are called or have placed their faith in Jesus Christ may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. And so the author is painting a wonderful picture. Because of Jesus' death for our sin on the cross, he is now able to be an arbitrator, that judge who can allow those who have failed under the old covenant, those who have sinned and not met the standard that was perfection under the law, he's able to still give them, enable them to receive the eternal inheritance. Why? Because he's the one who dealt with and paid for their sin, and so he is able to judge who's going to receive it, and who is not. Now, I think this would be especially significant to these initial Jewish readers who they were under the Old Covenant before they came out of it and started believing in Jesus. They they lived their life under that Old Covenant. They recognized that they failed to keep the Old Covenant. They were sinful people. And to hear this reality that, you know what, Jesus is the arbitrator, the judge who says, even though I failed under the Old Covenant, He, because of His death on the cross, is going to enable me to receive the eternal inheritance under the New Covenant, even though I have no reason to think that I deserve that. The author goes on to say in verse 16 and 17, For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. So the author's just bringing up something that everyone should have been aware of at that time, where there is a will and testament, there must also be the death of the testator, the one who wrote the will and testament. Because the will and testament is only in force, as he says, after men are dead. It has no power at all until they die. And he's just bringing up this simple reality. I mean, you can right now write all you want in your will and all the things that you're going to give. And, and you can even tell your children you're going to get the house and you, you're going to get this car and you, you're going to get this money and whatever. But you know what? None of that is going to benefit them until you're dead. Oh, they can be looking forward, hopefully not that you die, but to the things that they're going to get. But you know what? It doesn't benefit them. They don't receive any of it until the day that you die. And once you die, that will is activated, and all that you have said to be given away to different people will then be done. Well, in the same way, Jesus' will and testament, which is the new covenant, it doesn't benefit anyone until... It's activated. And here's the interesting thing as we looked at a couple chapters ago. Remember uh, Jeremiah chapter 31, God said, I'm making this new covenant and this is what the new covenant is going to be like. And the people are reading that thinking, oh, that's going to be so great. That's going to be so wonderful. When are we going to receive it? And it's just like a parent saying, hey, I've written out this will and you're going to get this and this and this and this. And they're like, oh, that's so great. When am I going to receive it? Well, not until I die. And this is the same thing. Well, when are, when are we going to get this, Lord? Well, you're not going to get it until I die. And so they had to wait until Jesus came, not just for him to come as a, a baby, but to live that sinless life. And ultimately, when he died on the cross, that will and the testament of the new covenant was activated, and now people could receive it. Well, the author is going to continue on with this point showing that the death is so necessary. He says, you know what, even in the old covenant, 
this was the case. Notice what he says in verses 18 through 22. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood and without shedding of blood there is no remission. So here the author points out that not even the first covenant, that old covenant, it was dedicated only because of blood. They used blood. You know, something important to note is when the author speaks about animal blood under the old covenant or Jesus's blood under the new covenant, he's not just referring to blood, he's referring to death. Okay, this is something important. It's not just like, well, you know, if you miraculously had some vial of blood that, you know, that was, you know, saved from Jesus from the cross and you kind of just pour that on yourself and like, oh, that's it. I'm saved. I'm sure there was plenty of Roman soldiers that were splattered with Jesus' blood. It wasn't that which saved. It was the death. And so the animals in the, the old uh, sacrificial system, they didn't just bleed them. They didn't just come, hey, let's cut them open. Let's take some blood. Let's patch them up and let them go live the rest of their life. No, when it speaks of blood, those animals were killed. Death. In the same way Jesus, when he shed his blood, the author in the Bible is speaking about a death. And those two go hand in hand. Now notice the author takes us back to Exodus chapter uh, 24, where the old covenant is established with blood. It's kind of a a real gruesome chapter in what it reveals. You see, Moses comes and he shares the laws and the judgments that had been written out that God had given to him. And all the people after hearing it were told that they heard the words of the Lord and they say, we will do it. Uh, the understatement of the world that they, they never really even came close. And then Moses, he has these calves and goats killed, and he has them offered as a burnt offering and a peace offering, but then he has the blood stored in these bowls. And he takes half of the blood, and he sprinkles it on the law that he's reading to the people and on the people themselves. And so as he's standing up there and this crowd is there, you know, this blood is, is literally coming all over them. You know, it's kind of this gross scene, but it, it's pointing something very important about the necessity of the blood. And then he takes the other half of the blood and he puts it over the tabernacle and all the instruments within the tabernacles. We looked at last week where you have, you know, the table of showbread, the altar of incense, the, you know, the lampstand, everything. All of this stuff is getting blood from these sacrifices put on it and he says to them this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you this covenant that we're making it's being made in blood from a sacrificial animal and he did all this to show that according to the law all things are purified with blood and without the shedding of blood there is no remission And this is something that the Old Testament keeps revealing over and over again. Without the shedding of a sacrificial animal blood, there is no remission. The Greek word here translated remission means to be released from imprisonment, to have a remission of the penalty given to you, to be forgiven and pardoned from your sins. Some translate this 
remission from sin, which is really the picture of what's being said here, because the only way for us to be forgiven, to be pardoned, to be released from the penalty of our sin is there had to be the sacrificial substitutionary death and the blood had to be shed on our behalf for that to happen. And that's what the old covenant was declaring over and over and over again. The whole sacrificial system, the continual sacrifice of animal after animal after animal was declaring, hey, you got to have this death, this substitution, and this blood in order for you to have your sins purified. Well, now that the author has shown the necessity of death in a will and testament, and also even in the old covenant, he's going to contrast that and point to, well, look at the, the importance of death and blood for what Jesus does in the heavenly tabernacle in verses 23 through 28. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. He then would have to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now... Once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. So in these verses, the author is contrasting what happened with the animal sacrifices in their blood in the earthly tabernacle versus what happens with Jesus' sacrifice in his blood in the heavenly tabernacle. In verse 23, he says, Therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, speaking of animal blood, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Now, as we saw back in chapter 8, we noted that the earthly tabernacle was a copy or a picture of the heavenly tabernacle. And so the author is contrasting what happened in this earthly tabernacle, that's this picture of a heavenly tabernacle, and the sacrifices and the blood versus what Jesus did in heaven. Now, in the earthly tabernacle, the author tells us, hey, it was necessary for animals to be sacrificed and their blood to be shed in order to purify those who were sinners. Now, back under the old covenant, when a person made a sin offering, they would bring their animal to the priest. And as the priest was there with them, they would place their hands on the head of that animal. And this was symbolic to say, you know what? This animal is now my substitutionary sacrifice. It is taking my sin. It is dying in my place. But it gets a little gruesome, kind of as we looked at, you know, the start of the old covenant. Blood was being splattered on people. This person now, they put their hands on this animal, and then they stand there and they watch as the priest slits the animal's throat. And as the blood is gushing out of their jugular, they're catching the blood in bowls. And this would have been, you know, quite a graphic, intense thing to see that, to watch that. Literally, this animal is dying right in front of you. 
And then after that, you're going to watch as they take this animal and they throw it on the brazen altar and it's literally burning. And all this was for a very important purpose. Like why God make this such a graphic thing and he wanted each one of those people who came to the priest to make a sacrifice for their sin to see the severity of sin, to see that sin needed payment and judgment. The consequences of their sin were so great and they could see the death of something else in their place. And it kept pointing to the fact that you need a substitutionary death. You need someone to pay the punishment for your sin. And as they watched that animal die in their place and be burned on the altar, they would just think, that should be me. I'm the one who deserves death. I'm the one who deserves to burn. This is what I should get and receive for the sins that I've committed, but this animal is suffering for me in my place. And all of it was for the purpose of pointing them to the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. That one day there's going to come a sacrifice that's greater than this animal and he is going to give his life and his blood is going to be shed and he's going to pay for your sin completely. But that was the whole purpose and God's wanting people to see this and experience this very graphic thing so they could understand the significance and the weight of their sin. Well, now the author is contrasting what happened there on earth with what happens in heaven with Jesus He says the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. You know, in the heavenly tabernacle, there's a much better, much greater sacrifice than the earthly one because the earthly one had animals that weren't perfect being sacrificed. But in heaven, there is Jesus himself, the perfect sinless lamb of God who was sacrificed for us. And the author goes on to say in verses 24 through 26, For Christ has not entered the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He then would have to have offered, had to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Here the author is going to reveal one of the reasons why Jesus' sacrifice is really so much greater than the sacrifice of the animals under the old covenant. But before he tells us that, notice that he says uh, something that Jesus' sacrifice has enabled him to do in heaven. He says, For Christ has not entered the holy place made with hands, speaking of the earthly tabernacle, that's our copies of the true heavenly tabernacle, but he has come into heaven himself, and he now appears in the presence of God for us. And I want you to note those two really important words, for us. He's in the heavens. He's in the presence of God. He is there because he's sacrificed himself. That's why he's allowed, because he's that perfect sacrifice. But he's there for you and for me. And this is a picture of Jesus as the executor of the new covenant will and test him. Remember, the executor's role is to, to manage and make sure all the, uh, the blessings of the covenant get to those who are supposed to, to get those things. And as Jesus is there in the heavens, he's there for you. He's there for me. He's there to make sure that we get all that he has made possible and available to us through his death on the cross. You see, Jesus didn't just sacrifice himself for us on earth, which is something he did, which is a wonderful blessing, but he also serves us in heaven forever as the executor of his will and testament. 
Well, now we're going to see one of the main reasons why Jesus' sacrifice of blood and death is better than the animal sacrifices. Notice what verses 25 and 26 say. Not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He then would have to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. One of the reasons that Jesus' sacrifice was better than animal sacrifices is because animal sacrifices were continual. They weren't perfect, and so they had to happen again and again and again every year. Once again, the high priest goes, and he makes that sacrifice, and he offers it on behalf of the sin of the nation of Israel and himself. And next year it comes along, he's got to do it again. And the next year it comes along, he's got to do it again. Why? Because the animal sacrifices, they weren't perfect, and so they couldn't deal with sin once and for all. And so the author brings up that picture of the fact that the high priest does this continually, but Jesus, his sacrifice was perfect. And so he didn't need to continually offer himself in that way. You see, if Jesus had to offer himself in that way, if his sacrifice wasn't perfect, then it would have been temporary. And that's why the author says, well, he would have had to die over and over again since the foundation of the world. If Jesus was just like these animal sacrifices and and his sacrifice wasn't perfect, then it wouldn't fully deal with sin. And so he'd have to be sacrificed and be sacrificed and again and again and again. But he says, the wonderful truth is that's not the case. His sacrifice was perfect, and it completely dealt with sin and put it away forever. And he never has to be sacrificed again. You know, David Guzik wrote something I thought was quite thought-provoking about the need for a perfect sacrifice. He says this, This principle of sacrifice explains why the suffering of hell must be eternal for those who reject the atoning work of Jesus. They are in hell to pay the penalty of their sin, but as imperfect beings, they are unable to make a perfect payment. If the payment is not perfect, then it has to be continual and constant, indeed, for all eternity. A soul could be released from hell the moment its debt of sin was completely paid, which is another way of saying never. You know, I thought it was an interesting way of looking at why hell has to be eternal because a perfect sacrifice is required to escape the judgment of God and people in hell, by definition, are those who have rejected the only perfect sacrifice there is in Jesus Christ and therefore they will never be able to have a perfect sacrifice in and of themselves and so for all eternity they will have to receive the judgment of God. Now, the author uses a very practical truth to give another reason why Jesus only needed to be sacrificed once. He says this in verses 27 and 28. And it is appointed for men to die once, but after that, the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. The author is bringing up a biblical principle that I think he's pretty clear that these people from a Jewish background would have understood. And that biblical principle is everyone only dies once. And then once you're dead, you have to face the judgment of God for your sins. And his point is that Jesus, who is that perfect and sinless sacrifice, he only needed to die once in order to deal with the judgment and take the judgment of God for us. 
Now, I think this is interesting. The author's purpose, I don't think, was to, to deal with reincarnation, but the, the statement that he makes here totally destroys the concept of reincarnation, which teaches that we live and die multiple times. And how good or bad you are in this life is going to determine the kind of life that you get the next life you have. And so if you're really bad in this life, you know, you're going to come back as some snail or something. And if you're really good in this life, then maybe you'll come back as some king or some queen or some, you know, uh, wonderful life. But you know what? The Bible makes clear that is not biblically true. We don't live and die multiple times. We live once. And then we die. And then we face the judgment of God. And the only way to escape the judgment of God is to place your faith in Jesus and the judgment that He took on your behalf when He died on the cross for your sins. And the Bible's making very clear there's only one time that you have to accept Jesus, to get right with God, to receive what He's done, and that's in this life now. There's no purgatory There's no opportunity after death that you're going to have to accept Jesus, that you're going to have to get right with God. Once you're dead, if you haven't accepted Jesus, you are going to receive the judgment of God for all eternity. The Bible is very clear. This life, this life alone, that's why the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Don't put it off till tomorrow. Why? Because you don't know if you have tomorrow. And if you're dead tomorrow, then it's too late. And there's no longer a time and a chance for you to get right with God. Now, our need for a perfect sacrifice that only died once, I think it's really important to note with regard to the picture that the author has been painting of the will and the testament of Jesus. You see, the author has already made clear the only way to receive this new covenant will and testament is if the Jesus dies, just like with any other will, the person who wrote it has to die in order to receive it. So Jesus dead activated the new covenant, and now we get to have the eternal inheritance that comes with it when we put our trust in Jesus. But if Jesus had to continually die to pay for our sins like those animal sacrifices, well, guess what? Then his sacrifice was only temporary. His death only temporarily activated these things for us. And so we have it for a time and then we lose it. And then he dies again. We have it for a time and then we lose it. And so the author is kind of showing us here the significance of his once and for all death is because death activated everything that we receive for eternity. And we don't have to wonder, you know what, is that going to go away? Is this death going to last long enough for me to continue to have all the blessings of this covenant? Well, yes, he can give an eternal inheritance because his death is once for all. And now he lives eternally. And that's the wonderful news for us that, you know what, we don't have to worry about, am I going to lose access to this eternal inheritance? No, Jesus' death was enough. Now, so far we've seen that Jesus is the testator, the one who wrote the new covenant will and testament. He's the activator. It's his sacrificial death that made it possible for us to have it. He's the arbitrator. He's the judge who can allow that those who have failed under the old covenant to still receive the blessings of the new. He's the executor. He manages from heaven all of the new covenant to make sure that we receive the blessings of it. And the author shares in the conclusion here one more important role that Jesus has in connection with his will and testament, and that is that he is the returner. You know, we are told, to those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. 
You know, when Jesus came the first time, he came for our sin. He came to take our sin. He came to take the judgment of our sin on the cross, and he rose from the dead to conquer sin and death. And now that Jesus has perfectly dealt with the sin problem when he comes a second time, he doesn't have to worry about that. It's already done. It's already dealt with. It's already taken care of. And so the next time he comes, it's going to be apart from sin for salvation. He's not going to deal with our sin again. He's actually going to give us a complete salvation. Because when we think of salvation, the Bible speaks of things in stages, and there's this final stage that we're desperate for. Because still in this life, we deal with this sinful flesh. But there's going to come a time when we are glorified, when we're given new heavenly bodies. And guess what? Those bodies are not going to have a sinful flesh, and we're no longer going to sin. We're no longer going to be tempted to sin. We're no longer going to have that issue. And that's when that salvation is fully complete. And so when he comes again, we'll be blessed with that. But here's the thing I want you to note. We are called, notice this, to eagerly wait for his coming. You know, I know a lot of believers who are very clear on eschatology. They know the Bible talks about Jesus' return. They could tell you about the rapture and the second coming and all these things. But you know what? They're not eager. They're not eagerly waiting. It doesn't even seem like they care much about the fact that Jesus could come for them at any moment. You know, for a lot of the time that I was engaged to Jenny, I was in Scotland and she was in Alabama. And a week before our wedding, I flew from Scotland to Alabama. And, and Jenny knew the exact day and time and, and flight and airline that I was coming on to, to come in to Alabama. And you know what? She wasn't disinterested. She wasn't like, well, if he comes, he comes. If he doesn't, he doesn't. Who cares? She was eagerly waiting for me to come. She was super excited. She was counting down the days, full of anticipation of when that plane would land and we could finally be together and get married. You know, this is how you and I should be waiting for Jesus' return. The Bible speaks of us as the bride of Christ, that we should be eagerly anticipating, excited, waiting for the return of Jesus for us. You know, a lot of us have lost people that we deeply love. We've lost parents. Some have lost children, siblings, friends. And I want you to think about something. How excited would you be if that person that you lost could miraculously come back? And if you knew next Sunday they would be here at church and that you would be able to see them again, you would be able to embrace them again, you'd be able to spend time with them again. How excited, how, how much would you anticipate next Sunday? How eagerly would you be waiting for their return. You know, Jesus has done so much for us to make his new covenant will and testament available. He's the testator, the activator, the arbitrator, the executor, and the returner. And because of all that Jesus has done for us, we should be eagerly waiting for his return and profoundly thankful for all he's done for us. Let's pray.